framework for what we're about to look at in the book of Revelation. We finished chapter 5 last week. Next passage will be chapter 6, which will uh, introduce us to the sealed. The seals on the book or scroll, depending on which translation you have. But uh, we want to set a framework, in particular a, a framework of time, as to the setting of what we'll be studying. And uh, believe it or not, we're going to have to start back here in the book of Leviticus. To uh, what I believe to be one of the most remarkable prophecies in the scripture. It's the uh, prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. Any of you familiar with that? Many of you are not familiar. That's why we're doing it. We're in uh, Leviticus. And uh, chapter 25. This should be familiar to a lot of you. If you remember, we went through the book of Leviticus uh, last year. And uh, we're going to look in particular at one of the uh, special times in the Bible. By the way, you, you hold on to these uh, incomplete handouts. You notice they're not complete. All you see is uh, some dates with some names and some arrows that you don't know what they mean at the moment, but you'll find out. So hang on to your seats. First, we'll get done with Leviticus here. We're going to look at the particular celebration of uh, what God called the Sabbath year. Uh, just generally, you remember that when God uh, was going to bring them into the land, he told them beforehand, uh, not only do I want you to practice a weekly Sabbath, that is a day of rest every week that should be set apart for me, but as well, I want you to set apart one year out of every seven to give the land a rest. You remember that, most of you? Yeah, the Sabbath year. Okay. We're going to, that's what we're going to read about, Leviticus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruit. But in the seventh year... There shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you and your servant for your maidservant and your hired servant, for the stranger who sojourns with you. For your livestock and the animals that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. Now we'll pick up in verse 18. So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there, in safety. Now, God anticipates a question here, uh, rightly so. If he's just told the people, you're only going to sow and reap six out of seven years, how are we going to eat on that seventh year? And so, he says in verse 20, And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? 
Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. In other words, a triple harvest. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year. You see, there's a year lag between sowing and reaping. That's why they need that extra year. Until his produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. Isn't that great? God is so wonderful. He um, prescribed a, a rest even for the land. God cares for every uh, intimate detail of his creation. And, uh, of course, he anticipated that uh, there'd be questions. Where are we going to get the food? And so it's no small thing. Uh, he just is going to decree. He's going to cause the land to yield three times its uh, normal amount uh, in the sixth year. To carry them, they'll eat that sixth year and then the seventh year of rest and then into the eighth year during which they'll sow and be ready uh, to reap the following year. And now as we go through these passages, I want to make uh, some applications uh, for ourselves because there's a good application out of this. There's a temptation which the nation of Israel succumbed to in this, by the way. Can you see the temptation here for the, for the Jews? Sure. Here, here we've got a triple harvest in the sixth year, right? Well, why let the land lay dormant in the, uh, in the other two years? Man, we can, we can sow and reap in the seventh year and in the eighth year, and we'll get that uh, triple harvest as kind of a bonus, right? Doesn't that sound great? No. God said not to. But you know that's what the temptation is. And I, I want you to understand that God, you don't see anything in here that's conditional about that uh, triple harvest in the seventh year. He doesn't say, now, if you don't sow and trust me by faith, then I'll send you that triple harvest. He doesn't say that. He says, in the sixth year, I'm going to give you a triple harvest. And then it's up to you, out of that grace that I'm going to bestow on you, to then obey me and not so, for that year and then the next as well. And there's always a temptation, even for the believer, since he's already done everything for us. He's bestowed our grace upon us. Our names are written in the book of life. We have a home in heaven. Jesus is going to come back. That uh, we kind of forget, you know. And there's a real danger in abusing the grace of God. And as we know, of course, in the case of the nation of Israel, they did just that. Well, he's going to warn them uh, not to do that. Look in the next chapter, chapter 26. <clears throat> in verse 33, this is the chapter of blessings and woes. Blessing if they obey him in all the statutes and commandments that he has <clears throat> thus far detailed in, in Leviticus. And then followed by warnings, woes, if they don't obey him. And here he's addressing the issue of the Sabbath year. Chapter 26, verse 33. <clears throat> I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. Got that? So God says, if you don't give the land its rest, I'll make sure that it does. And the way I'm going to do that, I'm going to haul you off to another land. 
get you out of there so you can't plow the land. And I'm going to give the land rest for as long as it takes to give it the rest in the Sabbath that you didn't give it. Okay? Uh, and then toward the end, uh, verse 40, he finishes this section of blessings and woes with a note of hope. Even if they disobey and are carried away into captivity, he says in verse 40, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they also have walked contrary to me and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember I will remember the land. And he goes on to say that he will withdraw his hand from punishing them. So, there's, it should be a fairly familiar passage. We looked at this last year, but it's going to come into play in the life of uh, Daniel, in fact, in the, in the life of the whole nation, uh, because, as we know, among other things, they didn't keep the Sabbath year for the land. They succumbed to that temptation of getting the triple harvest and then the other harvest on top of it. It's amazing the patience of God because he allowed it to go on, as we're going to see, for 490 years. Which again uh, has a good application to us. Um, the judgment of God doesn't fall right away you know, when we obey. Yeah, he's a very patient God. But, uh, as he says in uh, Galatians, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. And you can just picture the Jews going along here for 490 years thinking they're cutting a big fat hog. You know, they're getting away with something. They weren't getting away with anything. God was making a note, but he was patient. And he kept uh, sending prophets to them to bring them back to himself and say, repent, turn from your sins. But he was making careful note. Nothing went by unnoticed. And finally, uh, his patience ran out. And we'll see that. Now turn to Second Chronicles. If you're familiar with the historic books of the Old Testament, uh, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, uh, Chronicle, the last kings, the last years of uh, the Israelites in the land before they're taken into captivity. Very last chapter of 2 Chronicles, 36. And we're getting close to your chart here. Uh, 36 will begin in verse 11 of Second Chronicles 36. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. These are the last days of Israel in the land. They've been there for oh, about uh, almost a thousand years and uh, the patience of God has finally run out. So, 
He's, he's warned them. He warned them way back in Leviticus. He warned them in Deuteronomy. He warned them throughout their stay. And finally, his patience has run out. And so we see at verse 15, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Now just a, a note on the patience of God here. Uh, it says that he sent his messengers rising up early. I like that. Uh, they may well have gotten up early in the morning, but it's actually saying that the Lord himself sent them rising up early. The idea being that he didn't wait until the last day to send his prophets. He actually began a hundred years uh, before he finally judged them, sending men like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. Uh, and in fact, if you remember your Bible history, the uh, kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel was actually broken in two. Remember the son of uh, Solomon, Rehoboam, uh, inherited the southern kingdom of Judah, and a rival, Jeroboam, a man who was not a child of uh, Solomon, uh, took over the ten northern tribes, which became the northern kingdom, which is referred to then as Israel in uh, the books of Kings and Chronicles, and the southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. Uh, God first took the northern kingdom into captivity. That happened over a hundred years before this passage we just read. So, the, the uh, ones he's addressing here, the southern kingdom, Judah, the ones probably closest to his heart, they already have seen God's judgment on the northern kingdom. They've been gone for a hundred years. Their land has been vacant. They've been deported. And along with that, all the prophets coming, it's incredible. Uh, the hard-heartedness of the Jews as they saw the hand of God already act in judgment once the northern kingdom and still they hadn't repented so verse 17 therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans that's uh, Nebuchadnezzar who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin on the aged or the weak he gave them all into his hand and all the articles from the house of God great and small the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders all these he took to Babylon okay now at your chart, you can make your first entry. The, uh, I'll tell you now, the, the, the vertical arrows here, you notice they have uh, arrowheads on the end of these vertical lines. The first one has an arrow, is an arrow pointing down. The other four are arrows pointing up. Okay, the arrow pointing down is talking about the Jews going into captivity. And the four arrows going up are the returns from captivity. This is going to become important when we get into the book of Daniel. But right now, we've just talked about the first arrow. Now, actually, there were several waves of uh, exodus, so to speak, of taking the Jews into captivity. But this is the primary one. This is the first one for the nation of Judah. And if you want to write a date down the bottom of it, it's 605 B.C. Okay. 605 B.C., and the reference is here in 2 Chronicles 36, verse uh, 17. We'll pick up reading in verse 19. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. This is going to become important later on, this idea of 
uh, destroying the city, leveling the walls, and burning all the buildings. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. Remember that? God said, if you don't uh, allow the land to enjoy its Sabbaths, I'll make sure that the land gets its Sabbath by sending you out of the land and leaving the land dormant, give it rest, for as long as you didn't do it. So here's the period. Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So there, God tells them really here in advance how long they're going to be out of the land. 70 years. That means... Uh, every seven years for 490 years, they did not obey God in giving the land its Sabbath. So he's going to make up for those 490 years of disobedience by sending them into exile for 70 years in Babylon. Okay, are you, are you tracking here? I'm trying to go as slow as I can here. Uh, now, here, the writer of Chronicles refers to a prophecy. Let's just look at one of them. There's actually three places in Jeremiah where this is spoken about. By the way, Jeremiah was a prophet of God. He began his ministry about 630 B.C., so about 25 years before this event we just read about. So Jeremiah has been uh, preaching to the people for 25 years, and he's not the only one. As we said, there have been dozens. Uh, pleading with the people to repent. He's called the weeping prophet, as you know. Uh, his heart was really out to the people. He loved his country. He loved the people. And uh, they wouldn't heed him. And so, uh, in the midst of his prophecies, he outlines uh, the period of uh, the um, captivity. Isaiah 25, uh, pardon me, Jeremiah 25. We'll see the passage that... Uh, the writer's referring to. The reason we're doing this is because it's going to come up again in the book of Daniel. Daniel was a student of the Scriptures. And uh, one of the books that Daniel studied a lot was the writings of Jeremiah. Jeremiah actually was a contemporary with Daniel. Jeremiah was an older man than Daniel. But uh, they overlapped for several years. Here in uh, Jeremiah, chapter 25, verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Okay, there it is. You got that? Now, this is the only place. There are two other places in Jeremiah where God, speaking to Jeremiah, tells the people, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. And that's the passage that's being referred to here in Second Chronicles 36. Go back to Second Chronicles 36. Verse 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, what was that? Well, that they would be in exile for 70 years. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him, 
and let him go up. Okay, God's faithful to his word. There's a big gap there between verses 21 and 22, a 70-year gap. The, uh, everything up until verse 21, uh, we're talking 605 B.C. And here in 22 and 23, Cyrus, uh, much later than Nebuchadnezzar, actually 70 years later, makes the decree. That's your uh, next arrow going up, first one going up. You see Cyrus there at the top? Okay. Now the decree here that he made is actually in 538. <clears throat> so uh, if you count the each year is complete, it's actually 68 years. And you say, well, God said 70. Well, by the time they got back and uh, started rebuilding the temple and got their houses in, in order, they really didn't uh, break the land until another year. Uh, and so, trust me, God let the land lay uh, dormant for exactly 70 years. Okay. So, that big gap between the, the first down arrow and the, and the uh, first up arrow uh, is the period of captivity. And the first up arrow signals the return of the exiles under Cyrus, which we just read about. Okay. Now, hold that thought. <clears throat> Let's turn back to Daniel. <clears throat> Daniel was a prophet. He was a, a prophet in exile. Whereas most of the prophets in the Old Testament uh, had their ministry and prophesied before the exile. There were a few who were after the exile. Malachi, uh, Zechariah, and others. Haggai is a, a, a post-exilic prophet, as he's called. Uh, Daniel is a prophet during the exile. A part, yeah, during the exile, he was carried away in 605, along with a lot of other Jews from the land and taken into Babylon. In fact, Daniel chapter 1, the very first verse, he describes that. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Uh, and then it says that he singled out certain men to take with him to serve in his court. And uh, verse 6, Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So, Daniel lists himself as being one of the young men that was taken away. We don't know exactly how, he, how old he was. Let's say uh, probably 15. Well, we'll pick a number out of the air. Young man. And you know the story here at the beginning, of course. He refused to eat the king's food, particularly the meat, because it would have been offered to idols. And, he's, and as well as the wine, he said, we refuse that. Uh, just give us water and vegetables. And of course, the, uh, the keeper of, of the king's court wasn't happy with that because uh, he was afraid they would get thin and the king would get mad at him. So Daniel, as you remember, said, well, let, let's give it a test. You just feed us on the water and vegetables. You feed all the other young men that are willing to eat it on all the meat and the wine and all the fancy stuff from the king and, and see what happens. And of course, God honored that obedience. And Daniel and his friends, who only survived on vegetables and water, were uh, fatter, but in the good sense, than the rest. Uh, very healthy. They were better off because they obeyed God. But that's another story. Uh, many, many wonderful stories, as you know, in the book of Daniel. Daniel uh, survived the entire captivity. He spent the whole 70 years 
in Babylon. And during that time, he went through the reign of many kings, as you know, if you've read the book of Daniel. And God gave him many uh, all-encompassing prophecies covering the periods of kingdoms throughout history. It's, it's a wonderful book for prophecy. But I want to pick up toward the end of Daniel's life in chapter 9. By now, Daniel has been in the land uh, about 68 years. He knows that the captivity should be drawing to an end. He knows that soon the Israelites should be returning to the land. How does he know that? Because he's a student of the Scripture. And he's read Jeremiah. I'll tell you, I bet Jeremiah was a careworn uh, section for Daniel. Um, because there was a lot in there about uh, not only the, the, the judgment and why it happened, but the promise of return. So we pick up in... Chapter 9, here we are, Daniel, uh, roughly 68 years later, if he was 15, before he'd be 83. Okay, so in the verse we read there, picture him as a young man eating vegetables and drinking water and being healthy. Now, later, he's an old man, uh, but preserved by God, uh, young in spirit, 83-year-old uh, man or so, <clears throat> and he's praying. Because as he's thinking about the return, and he's realizing why they were brought there in the first place. It, it, it comes upon him again, the sin of the nation. And he remembers, of course, the passage in Leviticus as well, where God said, if my people will humble themselves and confess their sin, then I will lift my hand from judging them. Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, so here we got another guy. Uh, you see him there, overlapping Cyrus. You see that? Now, the reason I did that is because if you notice, there's another Darius. See it up there? Darius the Great. This is Darius the Mede. He's a different guy. He's really a subservient king under Cyrus. The kingdom of Persia was huge. It covered the whole Middle East, uh, over to India, and uh, over to Greece. And so Cyrus is over the whole empire. He, he's elsewhere called the king of kings. And uh, Darius is a king under him, Darius the Mede. So this is the Darius that he's talking about here. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Notice you have a man here who believes the word of God. He doesn't read 70 and say, well, he means about 70. You notice that? 70. God means what he says. And he knows it's getting near that time. So, verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O oh Lord, great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. And as, we won't read the whole prayer, but as he goes on, he confesses the sin of the nation of Israel to the Lord his God. And then uh, at the end, verse 16, at the end of his prayer, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all who are around us. 
Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations, and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Beautiful prayer. Notice, uh, godly man, he knows better. He doesn't uh, base his appeal on his own goodness or their goodness, but on the mercy of God. Well, uh, God, of course, heard Daniel's prayer. And uh, he answered it in a very remarkable way by dispatching no one less than the angel Gabriel. And as I keep saying up here, don't get a picture of a guy with fluttery wings with feathers falling off of it. Okay? Angels were incredibly powerful, great beings, were and are. Uh, and here he appears in a vision to Daniel. And God, as we're going to see, sent him the moment Daniel began to pray. Verse 20, Now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And now we will look at the four verses in Daniel 9, which is often called the 70 weeks of Daniel. If this is the first time, uh, or one of your first times to read it, I'll trust me, you're not going to understand everything but uh, you should pick up a few uh, salient points in it. Verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an on the desolate. Okay. There's the answer to Daniel's prayer. And uh, to use a common expression, he said a mouthful. Now, at first glance, if you look at uh, the answer that was given through Gabriel to Daniel, 
This, in its immediate context, would answer Daniel's question. When are we going to go back to the land? Lord, send us back. Be merciful. And uh, if you take 70 weeks, 70 weeks, 52 weeks in a year, right? 70 weeks, about a little under a year and a half. Okay? And we said this is probably uh, near 68 years. So, at a year and a half, you get near 70. So, hearing uh, this 70 weeks, at first glance, it would seem, that from Daniel's point of view, okay, another 70 weeks. 70 times uh, 7, that's 490 days. And we're going to go back to the land. But, if you were paying attention, there's mention of more things happening than just going back to the land in these 70 weeks. For example, Messiah is spoken about here. Messiah is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the date we're talking about here, by the way, I, I didn't tell you, the number to put under the first arrow going up there is 538. <clears throat> 538 B.C. And this is uh, the year that Daniel was praying. He said so. Uh, back in verse 1 in the first year of Darius the Mede, remember. So, it's not long after this. It's in the same year, in fact, that uh, Cyrus is going to make his decree that we read about at the end of Second Chronicles. But I just want to point out right now, there's more to this prophecy than meets the eye. Do you agree with that? Huh? Particularly talking about Messiah. Was Jesus uh, around in 538? Or 537? Or 536? Well, of course, it's God the Son, but he wasn't born in Bethlehem until 530-odd years later. So there's something here that we, uh, we haven't picked up on yet. <clears throat> uh, focus on verse uh, 25. Let's, let's pick one section we're going we're gonna to aim at just this week. First of all, uh, you notice the overall period that uh, Gabriel said is 70 weeks. He said it in verse 1. Are you with me? 70 weeks, right? Now he broke that period down into a section of 69 weeks, 7 plus 62, and then there was one week that he talked about in the last two verses actually. 69 and 1, that makes 70. Are you with me? Don't want to lose you. This is just arithmetic, it's not calculus. Okay? Uh, and in fact, that period of 69 weeks is given in verse 25. Know therefore and understand. And he gives two uh, points of time. We're going to try to figure out what these points are. That from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, there's the first point. From that point in time. What's the point in time? Well, there's going to be a command to restore and build Jerusalem. And, and you, know, you may be sitting there right now and you say, well, we already saw that. It was the end of Second Chronicles. No, you didn't. <laughs> That's not the decree. And, and you'll see why in a minute. Until Messiah the Prince. There is the second point in time. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay? Seven plus 62 is what? You're awake. Good. Okay. 69. So, there's going to be a period of 69 weeks from this decree that's going to our command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince. Okay? 
Now, just offhand, I think we all can understand, these are not weeks of days like we're used to. Are they? No. Otherwise, it would be a year and a half until Jesus comes, until he's born, starting in 538. We know that that's not true. So before we uh, venture into what kind of period it may be, let's look. There are four decrees, actually, or commands in Scripture for the return of the exiles to do some kind of rebuilding. But first of all, I want you to notice, it's very important. Look at the decree, 25, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, the city. You got that? The city. Someone is going to make a decree to restore the city. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar did? He destroyed everything. He burned the temple. He burned the houses. He knocked down the walls. That's what they would typically do because the walls, the city itself, you know, with the gates, that's the defense. And once that's leveled, the city's gone. It's defenseless. It's the utter uh, act of victory over a people. Now, turn back to Second Chronicles. Well, we were looking earlier. And we'll look at these four decrees and we'll find the one that fits the starting point of the 70 weeks here, or the 69 of the 70 weeks. Second Chronicles, remember uh, chapter 36, the end there. Look at Cyrus's decree, verse 23. Are you with me? Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus, if you got your chart there, first year of his reign, 538, this is a decree. It must have been not long after Daniel's prayer that this decree came out. All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. You see that? Is that a decree to go back and rebuild Jerusalem? No, it's not. It's not even close. It's it's one building. It's the temple. And of course he understands this is the place that's dearest to the hearts of the Jews, their temple, which is utterly destroyed. And so this is a decree to go back and build the house. And you're going to find as we go through this that uh, even King Cyrus, as big-hearted as he is, is very careful not to let them build the walls and rebuild Jerusalem, in particular the city. That, that's a whole other matter. <laughs> now you've got a power out there which if they cause trouble, he's got to go besiege the thing again. You understand? Temples are one thing. Cities are quite another thing. God is very specific in his prophecies. He did not see, say, from the going forth of the decree to rebuild the temple. And we're actually going to see three of those. It's not until we get to the fourth decree that it's very clear it's the city. And we're going to see until then, the city is never rebuilt. It's not even touched. Okay? I'm saying this because... Uh, you'd be amazed at Bible scholars who ought to know their arithmetic in the English language have trouble. And they turn to this decree of Cyrus because it's the first one and they say, ah, there it is. There's the decree. There's the starting point. And they're totally oblivious to the fact that God said the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And there's a distinction constantly made throughout the scripture between the temple, which is one building, and the city itself. And here it's very clear. All right. Now the two books that uh, are best known for uh, recounting the return of the exiles and rebuilding in uh, Jerusalem, of course, are Ezra and Nehemiah. Very next book. Next, turn the page. 
It begins, in fact, the first three verses of Ezra are identical with the last three verses of Second Chronicles, the book you just looked at. Okay? So it begins with the decree of Cyrus. And there it is in verse 2. All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of, of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build them a house at Jerusalem. Right? Verse 3, toward the end. Now let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. Very specific. One building. It's okay. You guys can build your place of worship. Don't touch the walls. Don't touch the city. It's going to remain in ruins. Verse 4. Uh, they take livestock and free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. There it is again. The temple. Verse 5. Build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, then he enumerates the people who went. Chapter 2. We'll skip over that. Verse 3. Uh, pardon me. Chapter 3. Verse 2, uh, the people have made it back. Verse 2, then Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings. That's, that's the temple, right? Part of the temple. Okay? Keep looking for the city here. You're not going to find it. Uh, verse uh, 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. The temple. Verse 9, uh, he gives a list of those who are working on the house of God. Verse 10, they actually lay the foundation of the temple. This is the building they're doing, the temple. Uh, we'll turn over to chapter 6. Now, there had arisen opposition, as you can imagine, to this building project from the people around who had kind of moved in, you know, and made themselves at home. They don't like the idea of these people coming back and starting to build things again and settle down. And so they complain about it to uh, Darius the Mede. Remember the guy under Cyrus, the king? And this is uh, his letter in response uh, to their complaint. In verse 1, then King Darius issued a, a decree and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Akmatha, in the palace that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found and in it a record was written thus in the first year of King Cyrus. And, and this is Cyrus's decree. Are you with me? Darius is looking back in the records and he says, I found this decree that Cyrus made back in 538. The date here in Ezra 6 is 518. It's 20 years later. That's your second vertical line going up. 518. Verse 6. This is basically, it's a, it's a restatement of the decree of Cyrus. Darius is saying, look, Cyrus made the decree. I'm going to second it. Verse 6. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai, and your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Don't interfere with the work. Let the work of notice this house of God alone. The temple. Okay? Not the city. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Okay? Are you tracking with me here? Only the temple. 
Verse 8, moreover, I, in, uh, in fact, he uh, adds a little to it here. I like this. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. That's their area. <laughs> this is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And then he concludes in verse 12, And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God which is in Jerusalem, I, Darius, issue the decree. Let it be done diligently. Second decree for building things, and it's clearly the temple. It's basically a reassertion of Cyrus's decree. This is 518. It's your second line going up. Chapter 7. Now we're up to the time of Artaxerxes. It'll be the next vertical line. Uh, verse 11. Now this is the copy of the letter the king Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, and so on. Verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. They, seriously, they do that as well as we do in their legalese. Perfect peace and so forth. I issue a decree. And this decree, as we're going to find, is basically the completion of the temple, putting in uh, the finishing touches. The temple's been rebuilt, but it hasn't been completely furnished. And so as you read through it, you'll see the uh, silver and the gold, and some of the final furnishings. But the point is you're going to see this has nothing to do with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He's very careful about it. For example, verse uh, 16, <clears throat> he talks about the free will offering and in, in the very end of the verse, they are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. When I give you the date on this, you can write it. You, uh, I'll give you a second. The third vertical line going up, next to the last one, it's 457 B.C. During the reign of Artaxerxes. Got that? So going across the bottom of your lines, you have 605, 538, 518, and 457. Does that jive with what you got? Okay. So we're looking at the one in 457 now by Artaxerxes. Verse 17, back to Ezra 7, it talks about uh, money for bulls, rams, for offerings. They need offering, grain offerings. And offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. Verse 19, the articles for the house of your God. Verse 23, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. The temple, this is only the temple still. Finally, verse 27, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, this is uh, Ezra speaking, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Okay? You believe me? Three decrees, all clearly restricted, and understandably so, if, if you know anything about ancient history, kings were very uh, reticent to let people go back and rebuild their cities, particularly with the walls, because it would become an obstacle to enforce their will upon them in the future. Temples are fine. Cities are another thing. Just to show you that, in fact, um, turn back for a moment to chapter 4 because there was a time <clears throat> when the people in the land, in order to stop the work, they lied. They uh, sent to the king and said, these people are rebuilding the walls. They're rebuilding the city. They were lying. The people, as you, as you understand, were only building the temple because that's what they'd been commanded to do. But they knew that if they lied that way, that the king would 
be fearful and uh, put a stop to the work, you see, of rebuilding the temple. For example, uh, verse, this is Ezra 4. <clears throat> They're writing to King Artaxerxes, verse 12. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you, this is the letter to the king, the letter of complaint, have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. You got that? They're not doing that, as you've seen. Let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Verse 15, uh, the search is going to be made, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city. Verse 16, we inform the king that if this city is rebuilt, there's going to be problems. Okay? The king's reply is in verses 17 through 22. Uh, verse 21. Look at this. This is the heart of it. Now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Okay? Now, let's remember what we're looking for here. The starting point of Daniel 70 weeks is a command to restore and build the city. Jerusalem. Right? Not whether they were working on the city, but a decree to do so. All we've seen so far is three commands to restore, refurbish, rebuild the temple. And in fact, here, Artaxerxes plainly says, they are not to touch the city until I specifically command them to do so. Okay? Bible scholars? All right. Uh, now, second book in this section is Nehemiah. And here we'll find that famous decree that uh, is alluded to in the 70 weeks of Daniel that God himself was speaking about. You, why don't you go ahead and put the number now. It's the fourth arrow going up. <clears throat> the date, you can look it up in Britannica. It's a well-known date. It's 444 B.C. And uh, I know you're probably thinking, Oh, all right, Rick, I know uh, you, you said that uh, the, the enemy said that the Jews were rebuilding the walls, but you say they weren't really, but I'm not sure about that. Well, we'll have proof of it here because he says plainly, the city is still in ruins. The walls are still broken down. The palaces and the houses are still burnt way back from Nebuchadnezzar's time. They never touched the walls or any part of what you would call the city. All they did was rebuild the temple. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. The king is uh, Artaxerxes. Uh, look at verse 3. He's talking to some men who have returned from Jerusalem and they're lamenting. Why? Verse 3, They said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Okay? And that's not some recent attack. There's no record of it in Scripture, there's no record of it in history, and there's no record of them rebuilding or having an armed conflict with anybody. This is the leftover from the days of Nebuchadnezzar. All they've done is rebuilt uh, the temple. And so he wept, it says, for many days. Chapter 2. And it came to pass, I love this, God is so specific, in the month of Nisan, right down to the month, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. 
Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. I like this. Nehemiah is sad because he's thinking about the city of Jerusalem and how it's still in ruins. And uh, Artaxerxes picks up on it. In verse 2, Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. And I became dreadfully afraid. reason is because uh, if you're sad in the king's presence, that's a death sentence. You're not supposed to be sad around the king, you see. So he's afraid. And he said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, not the temple, the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. little arrow prayer here in the midst of his conversation. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah and here it is, to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Got it? Here it is, a request to rebuild Jerusalem. That was what we were looking for. So the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I set a time. He gives him letters, even telling the local people to give him uh, uh, material for the rebuilding. He, he goes back. He's there three days, uh, verse 11. He rides around through the rubble at night, not indicating to the other Jews that he's even there yet. He wants to get a look for himself at, this, at how desolate things are. Everything's all broken down. Verse 17, he summarizes what he saw. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Okay. Are you convinced? Huh? The, the decree, the, the command came from Artaxerxes here in, in uh, 444 when he sent uh, Nehemiah back to the city of Jerusalem with the letters to rebuild the city. And if we had the time, which we don't, if you went to the rest of the book, you'd see it's entirely different from Ezra. Over and over and over again in Ezra is the house of God, the temple, the temple, the temple only. Here, throughout the book, it's the walls, the gates, the city. And it began with the decree there at the beginning of the book in 444 B.C. Okay. There's our starting point. Back to Daniel 9. We're going we're gonna to close here. We're not going to finish everything this week. We'll pick it up next week. <clears throat> Remember where we started. Daniel 9... In verse 25, Gabriel says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. We found that command. It's in the second chapter of Nehemiah. And the date, as I said, you can find it in any secular encyclopedia. I looked it up in the Britannica yesterday just to confirm it. It says right there, 444. It's a well-known date. B.C. <clears throat> Okay, uh, the prophecy goes on to say here, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, there's the starting point. Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, 69 weeks, 69 sevens of something. Right? Okay, well, we have a problem here with our arithmetic. First of all, we know clearly this 69 weeks can't be weeks of days. Jesus didn't come 69 weeks after 
444 B.C. Did he? <clears throat> now, the word that's translated weeks here actually is uh, the closest English word we'd have is heptads. It means seven. In fact, if you look over at chapter 10, verse 2, Daniel's talking about another subject. And there he says, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. The phrase there is literally weeks of days. Here in chapter 9, it doesn't say weeks of days. It merely says heptads. Okay? So it is not weeks of days, which we know. It's sevens of something else. Now, the first thing that would come to mind, and the first thing that came to most Bible scholars' minds was, let's, let's work this out. 69 uh, sevens from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. 69 times 7, 483. Okay? 483. We're in 444 B.C. Maybe it's weeks of years. What do you think? 483. And now if it's 483 regular old years, there's still a problem. Because if you go 483 from 444, that takes you up to about 40 A.D. Is that Messiah the Prince? No. We have a problem. And in fact, if you took any of the other uh, four, any of the three commands to go back, none of them worked out. Nothing happened in 483 B.C., which is what you'd expect for this to work out. It's going to be perfect, right at the zero B.C. Actually, Jesus was born in, in about 2 B.C., so it should be 485, where you'd see a decree. Well, I'm going to give you an assignment. I'm not going to give you the answer. A lot of you, I, I know, already know it, but a lot of you don't, and we'll, we'll uh, give you the answer next time. But uh, let me just tell you that the key to this, God didn't give, it's like a lock. It's a locked mystery. And God did not give us the key until about uh, 600 years later. In the book of Revelation, which was written in 90 AD, he, there are some corresponding passages which completely uh, make sense and explain what's going on here. And in fact, when you apply that to the book of Daniel, you can then turn around and use Daniel as a key to the book of Revelation. It's neat how the Lord works. But let me just give you th uh, three little problems to take home this week for those that are interested. If you follow me so far, there's supposed to be 69 weeks or sevens of something from the decree that we saw in 444 B.C. until Messiah the Prince. Well, there's another thing. Let's assume for the moment that maybe uh, the end point of the 69 weeks is not the birth of Jesus, but his death. That would be the other significant time in his life. In fact, if you notice, it said after the 62 weeks, that's 7 plus the 62, Messiah would be cut off. So maybe that's a good assumption. Uh, he died in 33 AD. We'll talk about it in more detail next week. 444 BC to 33 AD is not 483 still. It still doesn't work out. You're closer, but it doesn't work out. Your problem is this. 69 times 7 is 483 somethings. They're not days, and they're not 365 and a quarter day years. What are they? What's, what is the period? What, how long is this something? It's real simple. You go from 444 B.C. to 33 A.D. Pick a date, the same date in both years, and find out how long that period is. Divide by 483 and see what you get. Let me give you a little uh, hint here, by the way. 
When you go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., that's not two years, that's one year. You understand? So be careful with that. See what you get. You're going to find out it's a nice, very round number. Uh, secondly, if the crucifixion is the end point of this 69 weeks, what event at or near the crucifixion fits this phrase, Messiah the Prince? Finally, if you're real sharp and you got both of those, your third question is, who is, verse 26, the prince who is to come? Okay. We'll give you a homework assignment this time. But uh, trust me, every, God, every word of God is true. And when he says 69 sevens from this decree, of which happened on a day, an hour, and a minute, then the end point, Messiah the Prince, works out to exactly right down to the minute. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that no good word of the Lord has failed, that when you say it, you do it. We think, Lord, of how you have such precise prophecies in your word. You say them well before they happen in plain view of your enemies, and they are unable to thwart you. You're a great God, O Lord. And we pray as we continue in the study of the 70 weeks of Daniel, we might appreciate in a new way the greatness of God, that uh, you have a purpose you are accomplishing, Lord, in the history of the world, most of all, that your Son might be magnified, he might be glorified, that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we who know you want to do it now, we pray if there's anyone here who has not bowed the knee, this might be the day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.